Thank you, Carrie. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open to Nehemiah chapter 13. Today we will finish out our, uh, our series in walking through Nehemiah. And this morning we look at Nehemiah's final reform for the people of Israel. But before we read the text and go any further, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open your word now, Lord, our hearts are before you. We are transparent. We have invited you in this place. Your spirit dwells within us. We are your body gathered together to worship you and to hear from you. So, Lord, would you speak to us now? Would you take your word And shine it into the dark corners of our lives. Shine it into our hearts. God, would you fill us with joy? Would you fill us with a sense of of walking in your power and in your strength? And would you fill us with a sense of being your covenant community, your people? And we ask, Lord, that you would incline our, our eyes to see and our minds to comprehend and our hearts to love your word. And now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth... And the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As Mr. Al said earlier, the theme of the text this morning is, is final reformation. And that's really what we see happening in the text of Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah is bringing a final reform for God's people. In fact, the reforms of Nehemiah really climax in chapter 12 of the book of Nehemiah. It really climaxes when Nehemiah goes with the people. They march around the wall. They come and they they end up at the temple and they dedicate the walls in a huge service where uh, where the choirs are singing, where all of the people are gathered in great joy and, and triumph. And in some ways, we get to chapter 13 and... And Nehemiah's last chapter is really a sour note, kind of a note of discouragement for modern day readers. Because in spite of all the great reforms that have been building really since the return of the first wave of exiles way back in Ezra chapter 2 under Zerubbabel, they've continued to stumble and to struggle with the same sins. In fact, the same sins have befallen the people of Israel for the last thousand years. It's as if the tired melody continues to drum on and on and on. There's the people come and they, they sin and then they experience God's wrath upon their sin. Then they're oppressed in their sin and then they, they repent and God delivers them and then they confess their need for him and then normally they, they, they make some sort of covenant and recommitment to follow God. And then they do it all over again and again. And we see this cycle throughout the Old Testament of God's people repenting and coming back, sinning, repenting, coming back. Several weeks ago, we looked at chapter 10, and we saw that God's covenant community must prioritize God first. And so the people of Israel in chapter 10, they they recommitted to God's covenant. They, in fact, made a covenant to keep the covenant. 
their covenant was centered on three areas of communal life. The first one is they were to guard their marriages. And by guarding their marriages, it meant they were to refrain from intermarriage with other nations. The second thing they were to do, they were to trust God's faithfulness and his provision. They were to do this by keeping the Sabbath, by keeping the Sabbath year and forgiving debts in that Sabbath year. The third area they were to focus on and prioritize is they were to commit to funding the temple. That involved financial and service provisions for God's people. Why? So they could come and they could worship God. To maintain the place of God's dwelling. That was the goal of servicing and funding the temple. So our text this morning addresses these three core values of the faith community. In fact, it it addresses them in reverse order. Starting with the third, the second, and then the first. But the sour note of chapter 13, I want us to see from the onset, the big picture this morning, the, the sour note of chapter 13 points us beyond the narrative. It shows us humanity's frailty and weakness to live circumspectly, to live righteously under God's law. In fact, the final reform of chapter 13 points us forward to realize that final reformation, renewal, and restoration of God's covenant community will be achieved solely through Jesus Christ. That's what we see in Nehemiah in chapter 13 as he ends. That's what the overarching work of these reforms point us to see. They point us to see our need for one who can deliver us, who can save us, who can truly bring us into the place of rest. And so I want us to read the text together. So if you found your place, it's on page 408 in the Chairback Bible, uh, if, you, if you need to use the Chairback Bible. But we're going to begin in verse 1, and we'll skip a few verses and go through the end of the chapter. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given as command, by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah speaking. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Elijah had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber In the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites, the singers who did the work, had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said... Why is a house of God forsaken? 
And I gathered them together in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and, and, on wine, uh, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish of all kinds of, and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of, Jerud- of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said, What is this evil thing you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel, profaning the Sabbath. Skip to verse 23. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashad, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashad, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they've desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Verses 1 through 3 start out on a positive note. We see that the people of Israel, they were, they were faithful. There was a time for them where, where faithfulness triumphed over failure. The people read from the book of the law. They found written in the book of the law that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. And as soon as the people heard it, they separated them from, foreign, from those of foreign descent. But beginning in verse 4, we're given a very different picture for the people of Israel. And I want us to see this morning, Nehemiah calls us to recognize three core values at the heart of faith community. Three core values. The first one is this. Corporate worship is essential for the covenant community. It's essential for the covenant community. We begin with the, the third item that they covenanted to prioritize. 
This was the central heartbeat of the covenant community. Life revolved around the house of God. If God's house was forsaken, the people of God were forsaken. And so Nehemiah asked the officials this very question, why is the house of God forsaken in verse 11? I want you to get the picture of what's going on. Nehemiah had returned to Babylon in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes. He had come to Jerusalem in the 20th year. He reigned as governor for 12 years. He had returned to Babylon to serve King Artaxerxes for a time. And probably, most likely, after a few years of serving there, he comes back. He asks leave of the king, and then he comes back to Jerusalem. When verse 4 and 5, we find out that Eliashib, the priest who was over the chambers of the house of God. He had this responsibility over God's house. He had this responsibility for the temple maintenance, for for worshiping God. He was also related to Tobiah. He had actually done something of great great repute. He He had taken one of the chambers of God's house. He had moved all the stuff out of it, and he had made a place for that that wicked man, Tobiah, who was taunting God's people when they were building the wall, to have a place within the chamber of God to live. Or to at least reside. He had household furniture in that chamber. Nehemiah shows up. And this was one of the chambers that was to hold the grain and the offering, the tithes, all all of that that was given for provision of God's people, for those who were working in the temple in the service of, of the Lord. And all of this had been done away with. And Tobiah had been moved into this chamber. So Nehemiah doesn't know of the arrangement when he seeks leave from the king to go back to Jerusalem. But when he gets there, he finds out what's gone down. And verse 8 says, he was very angry. In fact, he was so angry that he, he goes in, he throws out all of Tobiah's furniture, and then he begins to restore. He cleanses the chamber and begins to restore the vessels that were supposed to be in the chamber. And I think in Nehemiah's anger and zeal for the house of God, we see a foreshadowing of that which Christ does when he goes into the temple in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, making a cord of whip, and he goes in driving out the money changers and all those who are there serving oxen. Do you remember why Jesus did that? In it, he said, my house is to be a, my father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of thieves. You see, he was zealous for God's worship. Likewise, Nehemiah is zealous for God's house to be a place of prayer, to be a place of worship. And so Nehemiah cleansed the chambers, restored those temple vessels. But don't miss what's happening. The grain offerings, the frankincense, they were all withheld. The people had stopped bringing them to the temple. Look in verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. People had stopped bringing them. The Levites and singers had to go back into the field in order to provide for their family. So I want us to see, church, that when we forsake our responsibilities in God's great work, the community suffers. They had to go to their fields, they had to make provision for their families, and because of this, the temple ministry was suffering. The text doesn't tell us, but I wonder, what's the connection between Tobiah's living in the chamber of the house of God 
and the complacency and lack of purity and loss of tithes and offerings among the people of God. There's, there's, there's a connection there. There's a correlation. Eliashib, the priest, had forsaken his responsibility over the chambers of the house of God, and he had made a place for Tobiah. And as Tobiah was living in the place of God, the sacred place of God, we see, though, we remember that he was the enemy of God and of God's people. Perhaps Eliashib thought the exchange Tobiah offered was of greater benefit than the ministry to God in temple worship. You know, we don't have a physical temple today representing God's presence of, among his people. Instead, the New Testament teaches us that God's presence is, is with us in a much greater way. We, as the people of God, gather for worship. We constitute, when we gather for worship, we constitute the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, we're exhorted in Scripture to make our corporate worship gatherings of primary importance. You see, gathering for corporate worship as the body of Christ is essential for gospel community. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 We're reminded of this when he says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love, to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of somebody encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is why we see the early church in the book of Acts gathering together, centered around the apostles teaching fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. They were making this a priority in their lives. Living together in in, in, in covenant fellowship and and experiencing and, and doing life together as we say they were all doing this around God's word and I want us to see this morning that this is a necessity and I think so often too many people miss it today we miss it today we, we miss it because maybe we're disenchanted or, or because maybe we're complacent or because maybe we're caught up in sin or we miss it because we prioritize other things, because we've bought into the lie that something else brings us greater joy or, or satisfaction, or that we need something else more than we need God. Hence, Tobiah living in the chamber. When we see that when we, when we forsake our responsibilities in, the great, in God's great work, the community suffers. But I think we also see that when we embrace our responsibility in God's great work, the community flourishes. Nehemiah calls sin for what it is in verse 7. He says, what is this evil thing you are doing? Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded of this. Sin is evil. It is wicked. It's not just some pet that we keep in the corner. It will consume us. Sin will consume your life. Sin will bring you to the lowest point. Flee from it. Leave it. Do what Nehemiah does. Call it evil. Call it out. Rebuke that and go before the Lord and call out to God and cry out to him. Say, God, give me strength to to, to leave this sin. Give me self-control. Grow me. Meditate upon God's word. Nehemiah confronts the officials in verse 11. He gathers them together. He sets them in their stations. 
And in verse 13, we see that he had, he had appointed treasurers over the storehouses. A few men's names are, are listed. Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pedaiah the Levi, of the Levites. And their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, and Madaniah. Listen, for they were considered reliable. That short phrase, they, they were considered reliable. Nehemiah wasn't looking for some rock star, superstar. He was just looking for reliable men. And I want you to hear that God's not looking for superstars. God wants reliable men and women, faithful men and women, who will embrace their responsibilities in his great work and carry them out and serve the Lord with gladness, with joy, who will commit to walking with him, who will commit to engaging and to serving him. You see, the result is in verse 12. All of Judah brought the tithe into the storehouse. They returned it. They began bringing it back when things were set straight. You see, when we embrace our responsibilities in God's great work, the community flourishes. Let me ask you, church, what what is God calling you to be reliable in? How does God want to use your gifts in his great work, the gifts which he has given you? When we compromise on the essential nature of gathering to worship God, we lose sight of our purpose and significance as Christians, and that is to carry on God's mission in the world. But when we keep focus, when we keep focus on the importance of our gatherings as the body of Christ, here's what's going to happen. We're going to be encouraged in unity and in purpose and in mission as one body. The second core value I want us to see this morning, the second core value at the heart of the faith community is the covenant community must guard those things which set them apart. Those things which set them apart. Verses 15 to 22 tells us the issue. The issue is they've profaned the Sabbath, meaning they weren't keeping it. We might even be tempted to dismiss this as as insignificant. But understand, not keeping the Sabbath was an offense that struck at the heart of the covenant community's faith. And Nehemiah takes it seriously. And he asks the nobles again, what is this evil you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Verse 17, he confronted the nobles and asked them this. You see, by not observing the Sabbath... They were refusing to trust God for his providential care. They were refusing to trust that God was the one who was going to provide for them even as they were not working the fields. And they were actually denying faith in God by actively choosing to be like other nations. This is what all the other nations around them did. People of Israel were to be set apart. You see, the truth is simple. A people set apart cannot blend in we just can't if we're set apart we're called to be different but blending in is exactly what they were doing they had returned to their old ways this was the exact thing they had covenanted not to do back in chapter 10 observing the sabbath law wasn't about legalism it was actually about holiness and experiencing god's grace and they profaned god's holy name by becoming like other nations, they would be set apart. D.L. Moody said, a holy life 
will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they just shine. Listen to how the gospel of Christ, Jesus speaks about us being a people set apart in Matthew 5.14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. No, they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, being set apart, church, it's the foundational name, I mean, the foundational meaning, actually, of the name for church in the New Testament, the Greek word ekklesia. It means to be the called out ones, the ones who are set apart. We, as the church, as the body of Christ, God's people, we are called out. We are set apart for God's good work. 1 Peter 1.15 Peter reminds us, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What are we set apart for? What are we called out for? First Peter 2.9 is a familiar verse that we've shared many times throughout Nehemiah's series. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for God's own possession. Right? What are we called out for? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You weren't a people, but now you are a people of God. This goes on. This is the calling of God on the church, on God's, on his people. That we are called out to be distinct, to be separate, to be set apart from the world. And you see what's happening here for the people of Israel? They've returned to their pagan ways. They're not distinguishable from any other nation around them. Let me tell you, church, we, we must be distinguishable. We must be set, we, we are set apart. We must live out that live that out faithfully. A people set apart cannot blend in. They were to refrain from blending in by guarding and keeping the Sabbath rest. It was to refresh their lives and to point them to trusting in God for his provision. Listen, similarly, Christians, we must refrain from blending in by guarding and resting in spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines that will nourish and refresh and sustain our souls. As God's covenant community, we must guard those things which set us apart. So believer, let me ask you. Are you guarding those things in your life that set you apart? What are you studying in God's word? What's he teaching you in those quiet moments when you're spending time with him and his word before him? What's he, what's he, what's he doing in your life as you're coming before him in prayer and devoting yourself to him so that you might be a holy vessel used for him as you go throughout the day? How are, how are we doing that? don't say that to beat us up in any way but to call us actively to pursuing that let us pursue this this relation with christ let us pursue devoting ourselves to prayer daily and consistently let us pursue meditating upon god's word let us pursue being discipled and discipling others for the sake of god's glory let us recover the joy of salvation and remember that christ in you is working through you through the church, 
This was a core value at the heart of the faith community. They were to be set apart and they must guard those things. The third core value at the heart of faith community is this thriving homes lead to thriving community. I want to tell you what I what I mean by that. But we see it in verses 23, really through verse 31. Thriving homes lead to a thriving community. There's an interesting note in verse 25. Did you catch it as we read through the text? Nehemiah takes some serious action. He says, I confronted them and I cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Now, when we read that Nehemiah cursed them, it doesn't mean that he used profane language and a bunch of expletives as he walked through the town and just called them all names. That's not that's not what the scene is like, though we may picture that. That's not what happened. This is probably more of a formal scene where he brings people out into an assembly and he calls these offenders out. And he actually brings down the curse that they committed to in chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. In chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, they said they would enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses. And so Nehemiah is bringing this back out, and he's saying, you took the oath, and you put yourself under the curse. And so he's pulling out hair, and he's beating them, and he's saying, you're wrong in this. In doing all of this, Nehemiah's point is that God's people must remain pure, even set apart. Verse 27, Nehemiah asks, shall we do evil and act treacherously against God by marrying foreign women? Listen, this is about the holiness of God's covenant people before him. The danger of intermarriage between foreign nations with the foreign nations, it's seen in verses 23 and 24. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashad, Ammon, and Moab. Listen, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashad, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. The significance of this verse tells us The real threat is against the identity of the community of God's people. If they didn't know the language of Judah, if the children weren't being raised knowing the language of Judah, how then would they know God's law? And if the moms were of foreign descent and were not of Israel, how then would would their homes be a place where the the law was taught, where Torah was taught, where Deuteronomy 6.4 is lived out? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says in the New Testament. Then he goes on to say in Deuteronomy 6, 4, that they are to teach their children when they walk by the way, when they sit down, when they rise up, as they go along the path. In everything they do, they're to put it as uh, signs on their doorpost. They're to put it as frontal, on, on the frontals of their forehead. They're to put God's word there, write it on their, their wrists. And the point is, if children are being raised in a home where the mom is foreign and she herself doesn't know 
the language of God's word, how then will the children in that home be discipled and taught? You see, what would happen is in a generation, the people of Israel would lose their identity. Because they had acted wickedly, they had gone against God's commandment. And the point is, thriving homes lead to thriving communities. And if in their homes God's law was not central, then the covenant community would cease to be a community of faith. And I want us to make this parallel. Christian discipleship begins in our homes where God's word is known, known by the parents, taught by the parents, learned by the children. But it's not just for homes where children dwell. It's for all homes. A home where Christ is the center will be a thriving home, and it leads to a thriving community of faith. So let me ask us, is Christ at the center of our homes? Are we exalting Christ in our homes? Is this what we're, we're focused on? Is this what we are doing in our homes? Nehemiah's final reforms of God's people is to cleanse them from everything foreign. We see that in verse 30. And he says, I established the duties of the priests, the Levites, each in his work. But we know from history, this wasn't the final reform that God's people needed. Nehemiah's prayer, three times in the passage, Verse 14, verse 22, and verse 31. Hear his prayer. Remember me, O my God, for good. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done. Spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Hear this out. This is his plea to God for God's divine intervention. He saw firsthand and he felt the great need for complete and final restoration. You see, Nehemiah, the great reformer, points us forward. He points us to see our great need for Christ's final restoration, for our soul's final salvation. And as God's covenant people, we identify all too easily with the trappings of our sin. And just like Israel, and we long We long for God's final redemption of our souls. And the hope of the gospel, the hope of the gospel is that we have have one, Christ, our Savior, who has ransomed our souls with the price of his life, forgiving our sin through the work on the cross, dying in our place, becoming our substitute, so that you and I, all who profess and believe upon the work of Christ, and as Pastor Drew said earlier, if we are confessing and believing upon Christ actively for our salvation, confessing our sin before him, then we will be saved. Christ's work on the cross for forgiveness of our sins and confessing him as Lord brings us into his salvation. So this morning, I want to ask, are you trusting in Christ for eternal redemption? Are you believing upon the work of Jesus Christ? Have you been brought into the covenant community of faith? Have you surrendered your life confessing Jesus Christ as Lord And then live your life following him as Lord, surrendering all things to him. If that's not you this morning, 
I want to invite you to do that by confessing your sin before him, surrendering your life to him, believing upon the work of Christ on the cross and crying out to him in your great need that he is the one who can save you, who can redeem you, who can truly empower you to be free from sin, to live outside of bondage to sin, to live in freedom by the work of God through Christ. May the Lord bless his covenant community. Church, may we be a people who value gospel-centered community gathering together to worship Christ, making it a priority in our lives. May we be a people who value setting, uh, value guarding those things which set us apart as a community of faith. And may we be a people who are committed to having homes where Christ is the center. Would you pray with me? Father, as we close our time in your word this morning and our time through Nehemiah's book, thank you, Lord, for the wonderful work of a godly man who was committed to you, who faithfully served you and followed you. Lord, we pray for for, for each believer here, God, may you work in our hearts and our our minds to give us such resolve as Nehemiah. God, we, we cry out to you, we plead before you that you would strengthen us according to your steadfast love, that you would remember us, God, that you would strengthen us to live for your glory. And God, we also pray for those maybe this morning who are here but don't know you, that you would call them into fellowship with you, that you would convict them of sin in their life, call them to a place of repentance and trust where they surrender their lives to you and follow you, believing upon the work of Christ, your son, on the cross for our redemption. Strengthen us now, Lord, to respond as you are leading us by your spirit. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?